What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In late August 1990, freshman roommates Christina Powell and Sonia Larson were excitedly preparing for their first semester at the University of Florida in Gainesville. They are the very vision of, of, of hope and, and happiness and joy for the future. But they would never make it to the start of the school year. Hidden in the shadows outside of their apartment was a man fixated on his sexual desires and twisted need to succeed at something in his life. This is a person who volcanically erupted behaviorally. The hatred, the paranoia, the psychosis just un unleashed itself upon the world. In the dead of night, the stalker violently killed both young women, raping one of them before her death. His victims were bound, stabbed, and mutilated. In the coming days, he would claim the lives of several other students, each facing a similar fate. Rowling's victims would have had the, the most horrendous time during their ordeals because here's somebody that they don't know who's coming into their home, which is their place of sanctuary, and attacking them in the most brutal way. It really is terror of an unimaginable degree. His capacity for violence and his appetite for violence was um, more than anyone I had ever encountered. What's more, the murders, as well as other crimes committed by the killer, would turn the bustling college town completely upside down. He brought a dark cloud of fear and terror amongst the whole community of Gainesville, Florida for at least two or three months, where people were just afraid to go out, afraid to open their doors, afraid of the dark. He reduced the community to a sense that no one, and no woman in particular, was safe, that there was a madman on the loose, which indeed there was. I have no way to measure comparative evil, but certainly he was a guy whose crimes were, for this community and in this part of the world, were among the most tragic and horrific. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Danny Rowling. Danny Harold Rowling was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, on May 26, 1954. His mother Claudia was 20 years old when she gave birth to him. His parents had only been married for a short amount of time when his mother became pregnant, and his father James made it apparent he was unhappy with the pregnancy. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell speaks more about Rowling's violent upbringing. Danny Rowling was a son of a policeman but he wasn't a very compassionate policeman. In fact, he was a violent and abusive father. Rowling's father made it crystal clear he was unwanted and would continuously refer to him as an accident and said he should never have happened. 
His father also had a violent temper. And criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says almost anything young Danny did was enough to set his father off. If he didn't breathe properly, he was beaten by his father, that the slightest thing would set him off. And I think if we look at that now, we'd call that coercive control now. We'd call that the kind of behavior that is designed to chip away at somebody's self-esteem that really does destroy someone's identity. Time after time throughout his childhood, Rolling was told by his supremely arrogant father that he was useless. It was a useless piece of work and never would amount to anything. Just 15 months after giving birth to her first son, Rowling's mother became pregnant again and gave birth to his brother Kevin. Claudia would continually try to protect the two boys from their father's abuse, but she was never fully able to get them out of harm's way. His mother flees several times, taking him and his younger brother. They get away from his abusive, domineering father, but she soon goes back to the home. So you've got this constant chewing and froing, this, this constant state of upheaval, and this creates an environment that isn't safe, that isn't secure. Rowling's mother was his only form of stability, but she was struggling with mental health issues. And despite her children's needs, she wasn't always around. In an attempt to escape his father's mistreatment, Rowling began to isolate himself from others. Still a young child, Rowling's existence became a solitary one. He would often hide in the woods or wander the neighborhood. He would go out at night when his, his parents didn't know about it, and he would look through the windows of the neighbors' homes and he'd see them around the, the kitchen table, around the dinner table, happy families all together. And he's got that building resentment. Why have these people got this when I haven't? What's wrong with me? And that's something that, that continues to, to bubble away in the background. Suffering at the hands of his father, coupled with his mother's instability, Rowling was on a downward spiral. Now, the impact this had on quite a suggestible child was severe. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that Rowling's father made Rowling into a serial killer, but there was no doubt at all that there was a very great deal of animosity between father and son. As he entered his teen years, he was still trying to escape his home life. He spent more and more time wandering the neighborhood. Around age 13... Rowling's seemingly innocent childhood pastime of people watching became sexually motivated. Rowling had a habit of stalking people, and he would watch them. Um, that voyeurism that had developed during his early years, when he'd look through the windows of, of the happy families in his neighborhood and had that simmering resentment, turned into something else. It turned into something quite sinister. Rowling took a particular interest in watching young women through their windows. He was caught several times, and as a result, began to get a reputation as a peeping Tom. This behavior indicated that Rowling could be headed down a destructive path. It was that classic serial killer pattern. Petty crime, small offenses, gradually escalating into greater and greater offenses. Rowling began drinking heavily in his early teens, and in 1971, a 16-year-old Rowling got into a fight with his father. The incident resulted in him spending two weeks in a juvenile detention center. To escape his intolerable home life, Rowling dropped out of high school and joined the Air Force. 
And I think what he's essentially doing here is looking for some structure. He's looking for a sense of belonging. This is somebody who's always felt rejected, who's always felt excluded. And for, for many people who join the military, it's a family to them. It's, it's rules, it's structure, it's routine, it's, it's a way of life. At first, Rowling thrived in the military. But his excessive drinking soon turned to substance abuse, which led to an early discharge. Barely a year after he left, Rowling was forced to return to his home in Shreveport. However, it seemed Rowling was determined to turn his life around. He attended United Pentecostal Church and met a young woman in the congregation. The two hit it off, and in 1974, at just 20 years old, Danny Rowling married the young woman. A year later, the couple welcomed a baby girl. Former state's attorney Rod Smith has more. When he was first married, you know, he was a very religious guy in a kind of hyper-religious area out of Shreveport, went to a very Pentecostal church, had a very black and white view of the world, of uh, the ongoing battle between uh, good and evil. Things look like they might be on the up for him, but he's still drinking, he's unemployed, he's not the kind of man that he thinks he should be. In 1977, after just three years of marriage, Rowling's wife filed for divorce. The 23-year-old was devastated by the news. And this is something that I don't think he does move beyond. The very fact that his wife is the person that chooses to end their relationship, she's taken the control away from him. So we're just adding to these resentments all of the time. The downhill slide continued for Rowling. Around the same time as the divorce, Rowling was working at a local bakery. He had an accident with a bread slicing machine and as a result, lost part of his finger. Desperate, Rowling stole his father's gun and embarked on a series of armed robberies across Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. Eventually, he was arrested. Rowling spent eight years behind bars for the robberies. In 1989, he was released and found himself once again back in the family home in Shreveport. Danny Rowling had grown up thinking he was worthless. He'd failed at high school, in his military career, and in marriage. Aware that he doesn't amount to anything, and only too conscious of his father's horror at his uselessness, he's 35 years old. He's virtually amounted to nothing until now. Rowling decides to prove that he does do something and he chooses to kill. Not long after his release, 35-year-old Rowling found work at a restaurant in his hometown. However, this career was also short-lived and ended poorly. On November 4th, he was fired for missing a shift. Rowling claimed his boss had changed the schedule without telling him and was resentful of what he believed was a wrongful dismissal. Rowling is somebody who I would refer to as a grievance collector. So throughout his life, he's harboring all of these resentments. There are various events where the heat is turned up, and I think the significant one for me is when he loses his job at a local restaurant. Now, usually he would take this fairly quietly and he'd internalize his trauma and that resentment would bubble away. But on this occasion, he externalizes. He threatens his manager, he shouts at him. You see this rage begin to come out and this is the day of his first killing. 
Rowling was enraged. And the night after he was fired, he turned to his old hobby of stalking. But this time, he took it to a whole new level. A deadly one. He had recently become infatuated with a 24-year-old department store worker named Julie Grissom. And on the night of November 4th, Rowling decided he was going to have her. So he followed her home and he spied on her. He saw her with her family, uh, which included her father, Tom, and Tom's grandson, Sean. And he's got this vision of this, this perfect family in front of him again. So he's thinking, why have these people got this when I haven't got this? I feel really aggrieved. I feel really resentful about this. Inspecting the perimeter of the house, Rowling discovered that the back door was unlocked. Armed with a kitchen knife, he went in the Grissom house, where he brutally attacked the three family members, stabbing them repeatedly. And on that evening, he kills Julie. He rapes her, he assaults her. He also kills Tom, he kills Sean as well. So he wipes out three generations of an entire family. The attack on eight-year-old Sean was particularly horrific, says forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton. Sean was stabbed with such force that the knife went all the way through him and stuck in the ground. That is the sort of extreme level of violence that even as forensic pathologists has rarely seen. It really tells you something about what the person is thinking when he commits that murder. After raping and killing Julie, Rowling carefully cleaned her body, taking the time to put her clothes in the wash. He also posed her body in a provocative way. I think that Rowling saw this as vindication that he amounted to something. That this was his handiwork. This was something he was good at. Satisfied with his work, Rowling fled. Two days later, a neighbor discovered the gruesome murder scene. The small town of Shreveport was in utter shock. But for Rowling, the mystery of the local family's murder provided him with a secret sense of accomplishment. In his eyes, this was the first time in his life he had succeeded at something. For the first time, he felt in control of something, and he liked the way it felt. Six months later... Rowling had another altercation with his father. This one quickly became the most violent one yet. The Shreveport murders gave Rowling the courage to confront the man who'd humiliated him, emasculated him over years. He gets into a full-scale, drag-out fight with his police officer father. It is so severe that Rowling shoots his father. And indeed, his father loses one eye and an ear in the fight. With a newfound sense of confidence after confronting his father and getting away with murder, Danny Rowling decided it was time to move on. In May 1990, 36-year-old Danny Rowling left his home in Shreveport for the last time and headed for the college town of Gainesville, Florida. He was intent on feeding his newfound appetite for killing after murdering a local family in cold blood. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley shares more on Rowling's choice to move. 
Many people ask, well, why did Rowling's target a college town? What was so, so special about it that, that drew him to that place? And I think that was because it symbolized that the very thing that he resented, young people, successful people, people who had opportunities. And he is just a pot of simmering resentment. And it's no surprise to me that he takes it out on people who he wants to be like, people who he feels envious of. On his way to Gainesville, former state attorney Rod Smith says Rowling made a stop in Florida's state capital, Tallahassee. He got off of the bus station in Tallahassee and clearly had already made plans as to what he was going to do. He bought a K-Bar knife there at an Army-Navy store right there by the bus station. Armed with his K-Bar combat knife, Rowling continued his journey. Once he arrived in Gainesville, he set up a makeshift camp in the woods. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell says Rowling knew exactly what his next move would be. He was a, a vagrant, a bum, if you like, but he had a purpose. And his purpose was a very particular kind of victim. Danny primarily targeted uh, young women and they were always young brunettes like his former wife had been. I was always struck by the fact that, uh, for the most part, his victims were of a type. On August 23, 1990, as Rowling was settling into his new environment, roommates Christina Powell and Sonia Larson were preparing for their first semester at the University of Florida. They're 17 and 18 years old. They're freshmen. This is the, the start of an exciting period in their lives. But as they fantasized about their upcoming semester, Danny Rowling was lurking in the shadows, watching and waiting. And he's watching them through the window. He can see them giggling along together, having a nice time, washing the dishes. You can just imagine the kind of conversations they're having about the things they're excited about at university. Rowling has been watching them. In fact, he's probably spent the best part of the night outside in the woods just behind the apartment block. In the early hours, he breaks in. He used very specific equipment, a screwdriver to get in through a sliding door that most of these girls had, and a K-bar knife, which he also used. Those two elements were his signature. Once inside, Rowling found Christina asleep on the couch downstairs. Sonia was in bed upstairs. So he's decided that Christina is the one that he wants. So he gets Sonia out of the way first. He leaves Christina Powell asleep on the couch and creeps upstairs and attacks Sonia Larson while she's asleep. He puts duct tape over her mouth to prevent her screaming and also, of course, to prevent her waking up Christina, who's asleep downstairs. Rowling used his K-bar knife to stab Sonia repeatedly. She died trying to fight him off. Having killed Sonia, Rowling made his way back downstairs to find Christina still asleep on the couch. He wakes her, puts duct tape over her mouth to prevent her screaming, tapes her hands behind her back, and proceeds to cut off her clothes and underclothes and rape her with a knife to her throat. He then turns her onto her face and stabs her five times in the back. It's an act of the most grotesque wickedness. Just as he had with his first victim, Julie Grissom, 
Rowling washed and posed his victims. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber talks about why Rowling left the bodies the way he did. I suspect the posing of the body has to do with his last vision of the body. He, he can't take a photograph, too dangerous. So what he does is his sexual conquest, and remember this woman was a sexual conquest a matter of moments ago, he cleans her up because there's nothing arousing or exciting about her as a bloodied body, cleans her up, poses her, and I suspect at that moment, the flash camera of his brain takes one last look before leaving. The following day, Rowling chose his next victim, 18-year-old Krista Hoyt. Krista was a community college student and worked part-time as an overnight clerk at the local sheriff's office. By now, Rowling had developed a routine for his crimes. Once again, he broke in through a sliding door using a screwdriver. Once again, he was carrying his K-bar knife. Once again, he was targeting an innocent student who had her whole life in front of her. This time, however, Krista Hoyt wasn't at home when he broke in. Her absence did not deter him, and Rowling waited patiently for Krista to arrive. At 11 a.m., Krista returned, and Rowling pounced. Forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton describes the attack. He starts with a chokehold. He renders her unconscious. He then binds her wrists. He gags her. Cuts her clothes off after she's taped. Uh, has sex with her, kills her by stabbing her in the back. Actually punctures her aorta, which is virtually instant death. Rowling then returned to his campsite. But after realizing his wallet was missing, he went back to Krista's apartment. Once there, he decided to defile Krista further, decapitating her before placing her severed head on a shelf facing her posed body. What he's done after she dies shows a development in his technique. So he not only poses her in a provocative position, he actually beheads her and places her head in such a way that she is looking at her own mutilated, posed body. Sometimes, if people are psychotic, they have some delusion about the head. It's almost as if they were afraid that killing them didn't kill them. Removing the head and being able to look at the head detached from the body is a complete reassurance that the person is really dead. Though the Florida victims were all similar in appearance, it seemed as though Rowling may have picked Krista because she reminded him of someone. Many people who have observed that Krista bore quite a resemblance to Rowling's ex-wife, the woman who had rejected him. And it's no surprise to me that this was possibly the most violent of his murders, the, the one where the most rage was expressed. At this point, the residents of Gainesville were still unaware that there was a killer in their midst. The town was abuzz with excited college students, anxiously awaiting the start of the semester. They had no idea that Rowling had savagely killed three students in less than 48 hours. However, the parents of Rowling's first victims in Gainesville, Christina and Sonia, 
were becoming concerned that they had not been able to get in touch with their daughters. On Sunday, August 26th, two days after the girls had been killed, the nervous parents contacted police. Around 4 p.m., police went to the apartment and discovered the horrifying scene Rowling had left behind. Hours after the discovery of Christina and Sonia, Krista Hoyt failed to show up for work. Krista Hoyt worked at the local county sheriff's office and she was a very reliable employee. She was never late for work. It was completely out of character for her not to turn up on time. So when she didn't show up for her shift, which began at midnight, two officers went to her home to see what was going on and they came across the most horrendous scene. The atmosphere in the college town changed seemingly overnight. As residents heard about the gory murders, the once lively community was gripped with fear, terrified of another attack by the serial killer. And Danny Rowling's killing rampage wasn't over. On the same day investigators discovered Krista's body, Rowling broke into another apartment. His target? 23-year-old Tracy Paulus. He knows that she lives in an apartment not far from where his den is hide in the woods is. By then, people were alerted that something was going on. We know that because we actually have a tape recording of Tracy, and it's a phone recording in which she basically is telling someone else, as I recall, Tracy was uncomfortable. And she said, I, you know, if Manuel doesn't show up pretty soon, I'm leaving. And Manuel was working that evening, and Manny came home. Well, when he came home, you know, I guess the feeling was that all was safer and more normal. Manuel Taboda, who also went by Manny, was Tracy's roommate. Manny was six foot two and a far cry from Rowling's typical victims. Unaware that Manny was home, Rowling went about his usual plan of attack. Using a screwdriver, he broke into the apartment through the sliding glass door. Armed with his K-bar knife and now also a gun, he entered the apartment and was met with a surprise. Danny did not realize that Manuel had come home. So he thought he was going into an apartment that had one or two women in it. Manuel was not the target, but when he checked the room, he found Manuel. And, and actually, when he stabbed Manuel, Manuel came alive and fought him for a sustained period of time. Tracy woke to the sounds of her roommate fighting for his life. She rushed to see the cause of the commotion and was met with a dreadful scene. Terrified, she raced back down the hallway and locked herself in her room. Having killed Manny, Rowling moved on to his intended target. And now, all that stands between Tracy and Danny Rowling is a flimsy bedroom door. He literally bursts through it, breaks it down. Rowling taped her mouth, taped her hands behind her back as he'd done to his other victims cut off her T-shirt and raped her. Once again, he turned her onto her face and stabbed her three times in the back, killing her. Once again, he cleaned and posed the body. This was a killing spree, a spree aimed at, to some extent, and cleansing him of the feeling that he was worthless. Every aspect of Rowling's MO was intentional. He was determined to leave a signature to show the world he could accomplish something. As Rowling claimed his fourth and fifth victims, the city of Gainesville was in turmoil. 
Ken Porter was an FBI agent at the time and was part of a task force assigned to investigate the killings. He remembers how jarring the news of the murders was. I was driving to work on Monday morning, August 27th, and I heard a news report on the radio of three murders that had been discovered over the weekend and was just shocked as I was driving in because things like that had not happened in Gainesville. Almost immediately, the task force identified similarities in the murders. He appeared to be looking for young college-aged females with brunette hair of a small, petite build. That was the profile of the three victims that had been discovered up to that point. The same day the news broke about the killings, Rowling was still terrorizing the town. He committed an armed robbery at the local branch of First Union Bank. It further heightened the fear felt in the community. The next morning, on Tuesday, August 28th, the bodies of Manuel and Tracy were discovered. Tracy fit the profile of the previous female victims. She was a young female college student, kind of petite in build, brunette hair. She was also killed in the same manner as the other three, with a knife, stab wounds, mutilated body, and immediately everybody knew that it was the same killer. The people of Gainesville were anxious and afraid. And as more bodies turned up, authorities were resolved to catch the person plaguing the town. During their investigations of both the murders and the armed robbery, police came across two men acting suspiciously. One of these men was Danny Rowling. So these two officers followed them into the woods. They came upon a campsite that had been carved out of, of this densely wooded area near the university campus. The police saw Rowling and a drug dealer friend of his at the campsite. Now, when Rowling clocked that the police were watching him, he fled, he, he just upped and he left. Though Rowling's drug dealer was apprehended, Rowling had managed to slip away into the night. They look around the campsite and they notice there's a camping tent set up there. And they noticed a few things inside this tent. They saw this money that was covered in this pink reddish dye and they knew right away, oh, this might be the proceeds or evidence from the bank robbery. They also found a gun that matched the description of the handgun that was used in the bank robbery. But there were also some other items which were quite perplexing. So there was a ski mask, there were a pair of trousers, um, there was some pubic hair, and they didn't make the connection at the time between the murders and the items at this campsite, but they did bag them up and they were to prove incredibly valuable when the pieces were put together. As panic continued to mount, the FBI scrambled to identify the killer. Then on August 30th, Amid chaos on campus, police identified a 19-year-old freshman as a suspect. Edward Humphrey, who suffered from mental health issues, lived in the same apartment complex as Manny and Tracy. He'd also been seen acting aggressively toward other students. Two days after the final murder, he was involved in a physical battle with his grandmother, which involved him hitting her, and the police arrested him. Mr. Humphrey's behavior was such that he was highly conspicuous. I mean, he was 
He was loud, he was drunk, he was off his medication, he had, he had had brain injuries. He was out of control a lot, even in restaurants. Humphrey's grandmother didn't press charges, but the authorities considered him a suspect in the murders. So they filed charges in order to keep him in custody. An unattainable bail of $1 million was set, and investigators took DNA samples from Humphrey, hoping to conclusively link him with the college murders. He was under investigation quite heavily because a lot of the evidence pointed to him as a possible suspect. Word of that leaked out to the press, so he became a focus of the media as well as a focus of the investigation. I think everybody was so desperate to solve what had happened here for a lot of reasons, one of which is just a sense of security is that, quote, they got the guy. With Rowling's drug dealer also in custody, local police believed they had their hands on both the serial killer and the bank robber. But with the incriminating evidence from the campsite in mind, the FBI wasn't as convinced that Humphrey was their man. For some reason, I just felt that this was not our bank robber. He seemed to me to be totally clueless about how to rob a bank. But you never give up on somebody until you do the investigation. So over the next couple of days, my partner and I started conducting investigations to determine if this individual was in fact the bank robber or not. While the FBI continued their search, Danny Rowling was still out there. And he continued to cause turmoil wherever he went. He stole a car, he drove to Tampa. He committed three robberies, including holding up a convenience store on September the 2nd. And five days later, he tries to commit another robbery, this time in a store in Ocala, where he holds the manager to ransom and demands he opens the safe. But unfortunately, other people realize what's happening. The police are called and Rowling is unable to escape this time. Finally, Rowling was taken into custody then awaited his trial for the Ocala supermarket robbery. In Gainesville, the investigation into the murders of the students had hit a dead end. DNA evidence had proven that Edward Humphrey was not the killer. He found himself at the center of this investigation when police named him as a potential suspect. But, but this was a rabbit hole that was going to lead nowhere and it really was a, a distraction. Without another suspect for the murders, the investigation came to a standstill. And the Gainesville community, who believed the perpetrator of these nightmarish killings was safely locked up, would soon be gripped by fear all over again. In August 1990, a dark cloud hung over the college town of Gainesville, Florida, haunted by a serial killer. Five students had been ferociously murdered, and most of the killings had been sexually motivated. Plus, an armed bank robbery the same week the bodies were discovered had left the entire town on edge. The citizens of Gainesville, as well as investigators, had no idea that the perpetrator in all of these crimes had already been apprehended. Serial killer Danny Rowling was arrested for a grocery store robbery in nearby Ocala. However, Investigators had not linked Rowling to the Gainesville crimes. Police had recovered the gun used during the bank robbery and were able to run the serial number. They traced the gun to a registered owner living three hours south of Gainesville in Sarasota, 
and traveled down to interview him. FBI agent Ken Porter remembers the interview. So the guy told the story of selling it to some vagrant, some guy who was just passing through town who wanted to buy the gun, sold it to him for cash. And the agent asked him, well, was there anything that stood out about this guy, anything that you can remember that would help us identify who he was? Police were told that the man who purchased the gun had one distinct, defining feature, an observation that was about to crack the Gainesville investigations wide open. We were in a task force meeting one morning, and I started recalling what this FBI agent had reported, that the individual the gun used in the bank robbery had been sold to an individual who had a missing finger, and one of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents stood up and says, holy shit, and the whole room falls silent. And he proceeds to explain that during the crime scene investigation of the first murders of Christina Powell and Sonia Larson, that they found a piece of paper towel on the counter in the kitchen. On one side was the imprint of a man's penis, as if he were wiping himself off after conducting a sex act. On the other side of the paper was a handprint with a finger missing. And it was at that point that everybody realized the bank robber is the murderer. The problem is, we still didn't know who that was. Once the crimes were connected, the crime lab re-examined evidence collected from Rowling's campsite, hoping to connect it to the college murders. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell says that once investigators knew where to look for it, the evidence just kept piling up. Among the elements of significance were a ski mask whose fibers matched the duct tape found at the third murder. Krista Hoyt's pubic hairs were found on Ronning's sleeping bag at the campsite. Blood on a pair of his trousers was found to be Manny Taboda's. A screwdriver was found which matched the marks on the sliding doors by which he got into the apartments. But the most significant, perhaps, of all was there was a series of audio tapes in these disturbing recordings, Rowling alluded to the mayhem he was about to unleash. I know I'll have to run the rest of my life, but I'm getting pretty good at it. I'm a big boy. I can take care of myself. We're all down here for just a breath anyway. Well, I'm sign off for a little bit, but that's something I gotta do. As new details of the Gainesville killings continued to spread, police in Shreveport, Louisiana realized that there were significant similarities between these cases and the unsolved murders of the Grissom family in 1989. Investigators suspected that all eight homicides might be connected. However, the identity of the killer remained a mystery. After a period of time when it became evident that the murderer had either left Florida or had been arrested because no further murders had been committed that matched that M.O., a decision was made to test the DNA of all inmates in Florida who had been arrested between, I think it was like a three or a four month window, 
anybody who had been arrested during that time frame was going to have their DNA checked against the DNA on the, on the homicides. Because he was in jail awaiting trial for the Ocala grocery store robbery, Danny Rowling was on the list of men to have his DNA checked. And he also shared a characteristic of the suspected man, a partial missing finger on his left hand. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says it took no time to identify Rowling as the man they had been looking for. They obtain his profile, and lo and behold, they match and they've got their man. On January 24, 1991, the DNA testing was complete, and Danny Rowling became the prime suspect in the Gainesville student murders. Brian Jarvis was a sergeant covering major crimes in Marion County, where Rowling was brought in for questioning in connection with the murders. When Danny walked into the interview room, he was shackled. He had a lot of anxiety. His left leg would tap, it would shuffle. Um, he would be scratching his leg or picking lint off of it. In fact, there was one or two points there where the detective offered to show him the photos of the crime scene. He said, I want to make sure you know what we're talking about here. And Danny couldn't look at him. He turned his head away and he reacted. He said, I don't want to see that. On September 18, 1991, Danny Rowling was convicted of three counts of attempted armed robbery and two counts of aggravated assault on a law enforcement officer. These charges meant he would be jailed for life. And then, two months later, Rowling was indicted on five counts of first-degree murder for the atrocities he committed in Gainesville. Rowling is indicted for the murders, and he initially pleads not guilty. But he does begin to confess, and he doesn't do this in a standard traditional way where he sits down with officers or prosecutors and tells them what happened. He actually speaks through a fellow inmate of his. His fellow prisoner slowly unspooled the details of Rowling's crimes. Rowling eventually broke his silence and spoke to the investigators directly. He claimed his crimes were the result of a personality disorder. I have dealt with um, different personalities all my life. One personality is a gentleman named Enad, who is a Jesse James type. He, well, you know, he's... Well, he's not a good person, but he's not really an evil person. And then another one, the evil one that causes him to kill, Gemini, was the personality really responsible. Because I'm going to tell you guys, Danny's not that person. I never wanted to come this way. Believe me, God and my judge, I never wanted to come this way. But I'm here and now i got to live with this. Former state attorney Rod Smith said these claims were not going to stop Rowling from paying for his crimes. Now, in my view, it was not going to be about whether he'd found guilty, but whether or not he was going to be executed. Rowling was left to await trial, and the death penalty was on the table. It would take four years to bring the case to court. On February 15, 1994, the trial began in Gainesville, Florida. The prosecution was prepared for Rowling to plead insanity, but he had a surprise up his sleeve. Sure enough, he got up and he stepped forward and he addressed the court and he confessed to the crimes. And of course, the outburst was, the victims were stunned, shocked. There was even some people like, what does that mean? Did he just confess? I mean, it was, it was that shocking to everyone. Rowling pleaded guilty to all five counts of murder, three counts of sexual battery, 
and three counts of armed burglary. On March 24, 1994, the 12 jurors unanimously recommended the death penalty. I had no question in my mind that, that Judge Morris was going to give him the death penalty. I don't think Danny had any doubt. I don't think the defense team had any doubt. On April 20, 1994, 39-year-old Danny Rowling was sentenced to death by Judge Stan Morris. He was immediately sent to Florida State Prison. Rowling's legal team started the appeals process, which lasted over 12 years. During one of the hearings, Rod Smith was the one to cross-examine Rowling. It was the one time it was just almost, in my mind, it was almost me and him, just for a brief moment. Danny had said something in an answer to me, as I recall it, Mr. Smith, I'm not the monster you made me out to be, or I'm not a monster, something like that. And for the first time in the entire thing, I think I, the entire process, I think I lost my cool entirely. And I remember saying, and I remember the judge just about, oh, he was really upset with me for it. I remember saying something to the effect of when you kill that boy, were you a monster then? Rowling fought his death sentence to the very end. On the day before his execution, his last appeal was turned down. The night before his sentence was carried out, Rowling had one final surprise in store. After 17 years, he finally admitted to the Grissom family murders in his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. In his confession, he wrote, Hereby I make a formal written statement concerning the murders of Julie, Tom, and Sean Grissom. I, and I alone, am guilty. It was my hand that took those precious lights out of this old, dark world. At 6 p.m. on October 25, 2006, in Florida State Prison, 52-year-old Danny Harold Rowling was executed by lethal injection. In all, Rowling mercilessly killed eight people. The violence he committed against the women involved was unimaginable, and he slaughtered innocent people who got in his way including an eight-year-old boy. When a grisly crime like this is committed and people's lives are impacted forever, the worst part of it is, of course, the victimization. The families who should have been able to see their kids graduate from college, who instead have to bury them at the beginning of their college careers. That's the worst part. The things that mystify us most about people like Rowling is how ordinary they are. We want them to be monstrous in their behavior. We want there, there to be something obvious about them. And, and it's hard to accept that somebody this meaningless in terms of anything they accomplish in their lives could come in and, and kind of dominate and terrorize a community. When I looked into his eyes, it was vacant. There was just, just darkness. And I'd never seen that before with anybody, and I've never seen it with anybody since. And Danny Rowling is, uh, in my opinion, the, the most evil person I've ever met. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. 
Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those close to the case willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we would appreciate a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. March 10th, 1993, London, England. A man calls a national newspaper to declare that he had just killed a man. The 45-year-old victim had been suffocated to death with a plastic bag during a sadomasochistic sex session. He's not just killed his victim, he's humiliated him as well. The killer would turn out to be a hideous man with a macabre life's goal. He gives himself a New Year's resolution in January 1993 that he will become a serial killer. And as bodies kept turning up, he taunted the police with phone calls. He kills three men in a week. You know, that's just unbelievable. It just, just it hasn't happened in, in my experience 